This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. The Big Interview with Offscript. We are delighted to be joined in studio by mountaineer Naila Kiani, the second Pakistani woman to summit K2, the first to do it at the first attempt. She's a banker by profession, Chris. She lives in Dubai. She's a boxer. She's a rock climber. She started mountaineering last year. She started trekking in serious treks four years ago Amazing. in 2018. And uh, she summited K2 in July, which by many people's estimation is the most difficult mountain on the planet to summit. So we are delighted to have her in studio to relive that story and many others. Uh, Nyla, it's absolute pleasure to have you with us on Off Script. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for such an amazing introduction. No, it's nothing to do with us. That is your story, Nyla. You've achieved it. I mean, it's remarkable. A mother of two, I'm hastening to add as well. But I mean, where to start with this, Nyla? First and foremost, congratulations on what you achieved. And is it true you took up trekking only four years ago? Uh, that was my first, very first trek, yes. Uh, in 2018, I decided to... Basically, I wanted to see K2 because uh, I'm from Pakistan and, and it's a dream place to be. It's, a, it's everyone's dream to see uh, K2. So I actually decided to go with my husband after our uh, Islamic wedding ceremony to have a small wedding ceremony there because I didn't want a big wedding. I, I mean, if you've seen Pakistani Indian weddings, yes. they usually have massive weddings. And, That's um, one way to trim the invite <laughs> list is to have yes. it in K2. <laughs> I think that was my plan. Uh, unfortunately, my husband had to return from Skardu, that's the nearest town. Uh, so I ended up going uh, to K2 by um, doing this track by myself. And uh, But I took my wedding dress there to take pictures. So when I was there, I was taking pictures. P- people in my team knew uh, what was my initial plan. So they all started celebrating and, you know, they had a, uh, a, c- a celebration there. I posted the pictures two years after... Uh, it happened and it went viral. So, uh, yes. So you mentioned it earlier. That's. Uh, so, if so you might me asking now, like you, your, your husband to be at the time didn't make it. Why? Because the the trek itself was pro- problematic for him. Why did he make it? Not make so it there? he had a family emergency. His dad wasn't well, and because uh, I mean, four years ago we had no, we didn't personally have a satellite phone or no Garmin, so we had no way of being. Uh, 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 connected to the family, so he decided to go back to uh, to, to to not basically do the trek, and yeah. I cancelled my plan to initially. But he said, "You, why don't you go? Because uh, w- once we have kids, you might not yeah. be able to do it again." So he encouraged me to to go and do it. How long's the trek? Where do you start? What's the starting point and how long does it take to get to the base camp? So we start from Skardu, that's the nearest town, and it takes about seven days to get to K2 base camp. So it's it's quite long. So compared to Nepal uh, base camps, it takes a long time and, you know, we didn't have any form of communication there aren't any um because nepal has those tea houses doesn't it yes they, 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 they don't they don't Nothing. exist in uh it's really remote isn't it the, the k2 uh, area of it's the Kurukaram yes. range when you got to the base camp uh, as your first real serious trek and you saw the mountain did you ever conceive of climbing it no, no. I, I, I mean, physically and uh, mentally, I was okay. Emotionally, it was difficult because my husband couldn't make it. Uh, so I thought I'll never come here ever again. <laughs> so, um, but w- what 
I spoke to climbers there. There were a uh, few expeditions there to climb K2, Broad Peak. So when I spoke to them, I was curious because before going to this trek, I watched a film, I think it was called Everest. Yeah. And a uh, few people died at the end of the film. And I was thinking, why do people bother? I mean, if, it's, if you can lose your life, why bother doing this? I didn't understand it at that time. But speaking to climbers there made me curious. I wanted to, when I came back, I wanted to experience what they experience physically and mentally. So when you say, when you spoke to the mountaineers at base camp, what is it that they're saying that piques that interest in you? What is it about climbing? And again, I'm not a climber. I'm not even a trekker. I don't do much, in all honesty, as opposed to just watching football with my time. But what was it that they were saying to you that, that led to you to essentially to say, I want to do this? Um, to be honest, I don't remember specifically what made me curious, but the trek itself was actually quite hard. So even, you know, I, I went after um, uh, uh, last year's experience of an 8,000er. I was uh, trained physically, but still I found it hard. So when four years ago when I was trekking, I, I you know, I felt that it was very difficult. And I was thinking how, climbing a very steep mountain must be even harder. It's really cold up there. Uh, oxygen's quite low. So I think it, I was just curious after speaking to them that, oh, wow, these human beings are incredible. They're trying uh, to climb 8,000 meter peaks. Uh, so, so it was the challenge that I wanted to give myself, I guess. Um, I, when I was there, I didn't think I'll come back. But after coming back and spending a few months and thinking about the trek itself, and to be honest, it's very addictive. If you start mountain, if you you know climb a peak, <laughs> it, it is addictive and you want to uh, do it uh, often. Uh, so I think, yes, after that, I, I decided I'll climb a 7,000, which, again, was a bit ambitious because yeah. usually people start from 5,000, 6,000. But I in the UK, Nyla, usually people start with a, with a Monroe, which is <laughs> up in Scotland, 3,000 yeah. feet. <laughs> no uh, so, so, so usually, yeah, because usually people kind of there's, there's, a, there's an order to doing things. And I read now you're probably going to correct me because you just said 7,000. But Gasha Broom, what number? mountain was that that you climbed because that's that's one of the top 14 highest peaks in the world so Gashabram 2 that I climbed last day is, uh, is the 13th highest peak it's 8035 and to be honest I, I picked it I, I didn't know I'd be able to summit this is the first mountain you've ever you ever climbed ever yes what? oh my god what I did when I did the, the K2 base camp trek I um, I went up to a height of 5,600 right so I experienced the height and I to be honest I, I and I did quite well to be, uh, because there was a local porter there who got altitude sickness so I helped him down so I knew I mean it, it won't happen every time but I knew that there's something you know maybe naturally I am uh, I do well at at height and also as you mentioned I did boxing and I I was an amateur boxer so I knew mentally also uh, I knew I'm quite strong mentally so um, I just wanted to experience 7,000 it was I didn't even know I'd be able to reach that height uh, so I actually initially uh, picked Amadablam in Nepal that's just under 7,000 but it's a very technical peak uh, it didn't happen because of COVID so then I thought okay why not try 7,000 on an 8,000 meter <laughs> wow Wow. Uh, Nyla, we did speak to Robbie a little earlier. Robbie furnished us with the fact that 25% of those who attempt to summit it actually don't come back. Is that correct? That's right. 
and you were telling us off here as well. And again, I appreciate this is a very personal question, but within your own expedition, you actually lost one of the climbers that was with you? Yes. So as soon as we started, uh, it was the second day of our expedition, uh, one of our team members passed away. He basically um, died in a, a river, a glacier river. And uh, I mean, it was shocking because we didn't think it something uh, will happen to somebody so close to us and so soon, uh, so early in the uh, expedition. So it's very, very emotional uh, for us. And obviously, you know, when you're in, on such an expedition, you need your physical, mental, emotional strength, everything. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was very difficult time for well, all of us. When uh, when you're confronted with the reality of that, you know, you can read statistics, but when you when when that unfolds in front of you, how does it change your or how do you reconcile your decision to go up to the top? Uh, I mean, it was tough to see and. Um because some some people do stop so there was another uh, the camp right next to us there were six people two of their uh, members died and it was I mean in, in in the middle of our expedition and they decided to end it because I mean it was too dangerous at that point anyway we our team decided that we'll go ahead we'll um, they uh, basically this uh, team member of ours he was a uh, high altitude porter of another um, uh, a, a doctor, our friend doctor, and he said he'll go up and he'll dedicate his expedition to him, and uh, he'll raise some money for the family too. Um, so, so, but after that, I decided I'll go up, and then there was another Pakistani lady who was climbing, and I, I, I you know, I just decided, and I told her there's no competition from my side because mountaineering is about life and death. Uh, so I didn't really want anybody else to to be in competition or yeah. make decisions that may uh, impact their or my life. So I think that was the only thing that, um, I mean, th th not being part of that competition was something that was outcome of this. What, what did your husband and your children say about your decision to do it? Because it's a huge, it's a big decision. If you're looking at those stats, it's, yeah. a, it's a heck of a dice to roll, isn't it? Uh, it was very hard uh, for me to get my husband's agreement. It took me eight months. <laughs> uh, and he finally agreed because I told him I will not. I mean, it's risky anyway, but I have a strong team. I will uh, intentionally not uh, make any decisions that will put, put my right life at risk. So, for example, if I know weather's really bad, I won't go up. I'll only go up when it's safe. I mean, it was risky because when we were going up, uh, we had extreme rock falls. So every few minutes, uh, rocks, uh, different sizes of rock from this big to, you know, this big work coming down really fast. So we had different uh, uh, type of challenges like this. But I told my husband that, you know, I will try my best. And also I have, uh, you mentioned earlier, I have two small daughters. One is three and one is uh, Yena and a half and every time I you know thought it's really tough I used to think about them and I used to focus that you know I need to go back for my daughters I can't make any mistakes so I used to concentrate and focus even more uh, so, so so yeah so they gave me strength for a lot of people listening, myself included, for the uninitiated, and I very much include myself in that as well, Nyla, give us a bit of a breakdown. How does it work? How do you prepare the, the body physically, mentally, to reach the summit of a mountain like K2? You mentioned you get to base camp, you acclimatise, and then it's a case of up, down, up, down until you've kind of got your body ready to summit. Talk us through that if you can. 
so uh, I'll give you uh, the example from K2. So when we got to base camp, uh, base camp's about 5,000 meters. So it took us seven days. So that helped with acclimatization process. Uh, but again, so we can't go from base camp, which is at 5,000 meters, straight to 8,611 meters uh, in one go. What we do is we go to camp one. Uh, basically, camp one, uh, we establish camps at different heights. So yeah. camp one, K2 camp one was about 6,000. Uh, camp two was 6,500. What is camp one? What does it look like? Is it, I'm thinking tents, is that, is that what it's like? Yes, so basically we, uh, uh, we uh, find an area which is slightly where we can set up our tents because the whole mountain's really steep and uh, we, uh, can one... Uh, Doesn't have a cafe or a restaurant no, or anything. It's just tents. No <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's up no, there, Chief. No, unfortunately. And <laughs> Wi-Fi. Uh, we actually had internet on Camp 3 because uh, no way. In fact, there's a telecom company that installed a tower near Base Camp and we don't get the signal at Base Camp, but we got signal <laughs> at Camp 3 somehow. Oh, wow. Uh, but yes, uh, ca- these camps are basically slightly flatter. I mean, K2 is really steep. Even these camps were uh, not f- completely flat. flat. So where we find these uh, flat areas, uh, you know, between five to uh, 800 Meter, meters away from the previous uh, camps, we just um, we rest there for the n- night, and then either if it's acclimatization, we either go back, or if we're doing the summit push, we go up to the next camp uh, slowly until we uh, plan the final summit. Nasavi's been in touch. He says, super inspirational. Wish my daughters take her as an inspiration. Well done. Super proud. They are the kind of messages. And it's not the only one that we're getting in for you, Nyla. We're getting a lot of messages in. So you acclimatise. You go up to Base Camp 1. I think you were telling us off here. You then pushed on to Base Camp 2. There was a bad weather front coming in, so you go back down to Base Camp. Yeah. You stay at Base Camp for 10 days. Yes. And then at that point, there's a five-day weather window. Yes. We call it. I say we call it. I don't call it. The Mountaineers call it. It is a weather window where you think think we've got five days now from base camp at 5,000 metres to get to 8,611. We've got to go for this in that five days, correct? Yes. Uh, Yes. So uh, after 10 days, we started again. We went to camp one, the next day camp two, then camp three, camp four. And then on fifth day uh, at uh, approximately 11 o'clock at night, we left for the summit push. And we tried, like I said, our team wasn't really into competition. We just wanted to enjoy I mean, enjoy our climb as yes. much. <laughs> it What's was... it like when you're climbing at 11 o'clock at night under the sort of stars? Because I imagine, what, what's the light? What kind of, you, is, is it an incredible, you, there's no light pollution, so the stars must look unbelievable. They but do you, is there any visibility whatsoever? Uh, so when we left at 11, no. Um, but uh, I mean, I remember, I don't remember the time, but at one point, actually, I mean, it's, it's uh, surreal, but moon was actually below us and it slowly uh, uh, went up but I couldn't believe my eyes because I was like oh my god the moon's actually (laughs) below us below you you're climbing K2 in the dark I mean that's (laughs) that that seems beyond punishing Uh, so we had our uh, uh, torch had torches so we I think we used those for two hours and then after that we slowly started to uh, get some uh, light because uh, uh, just a couple of hours before uh, sunrise right I mean, we could see uh, without the torch. What's your physical state at that point? Because you're obviously you're, you do have a su- supply of oxygen, but you're 
I mean, just moving at that at that altitude must be require a lot of effort. Uh, it was very hard. I mean, we were moving very slow because our gear itself is really uh, heavy. Uh, and uh, obviously the altitude, it was uh, when we left for summit push, we were already in 8,000 meter zone. So 8,000 uh, 8, meter plus is called uh, death zone because level of oxygen is so low that human body can't stay there for a very long time. And then we um, we could see bottleneck area. I don't know if you've heard yes, of Yes, bottlenecking. We had it. Nims, uh, didn't we? Nims uh, Persma, uh, who was the man, of course, who completed the 14 peaks yes, in record-breaking time. Uh, he would talk about that as well, the bottlenecking on Everest. Famous picture, his picture that went yes. viral. There was bottlenecking on K2. Yes, and that bottleneck actually... I mean, it's actually a section that's called bottleneck because it has a massive... Ice rack overhanging, and that can fall anytime. And they killed uh, 15 climbers a few years ago. Uh, so it's one of the most dangerous and technical sections of uh, K2 Mountain. Right, you've got to answer this. If you are aware, you get to a portion of a mountain that you know it could fall. Your words, it could fall at any time. It killed, for goodness sake, 15 people. Where is your mind, Nyla, at this point? You're looking at this thinking, this could fall at any moment. You must have been petrified, no? Uh, I was actually because there were other areas which were technically hard, technically harder. But because it's it has a reputation and and everybody talks about bottleneck and how scary it is, it was actually I I, I was frightened first time. I mean, before that section, I had uh, negative thoughts like, oh, I might not be able to do it. But I tried to stop them. But that was the first point I actually was really scared, uh, not j only because of the section itself, but because the queue uh, that we talked about, uh, we had so many people in front of us waiting and we were going really slow. So, so I mean, in the previous years, uh, other climbers didn't have that problem that they were stuck behind a oh massive queue. What, what, um, give me some idea of the, the sort of perilousness of your position at this stage how narrow is this path and how steep is the drop is, is there like a, a drop off like a sheer drop to, to one side of you and, and the mountain to the other how, how, how does it work uh, it was about 70 80 degrees uh, gradient. And, gradient and then the Sirac above, it, above us was basically overhanging like this so we had to go through it and then uh, it's it's basically we traverse across this uh, area called bottleneck and then as soon as it ends there's blue ice and blue ice very difficult to climb and we basically had to wait there uh, for I'd say the queue added three hours extra crazy. Uh, to our uh, three hours waiting on one of the most perilous mountains on the planet. So there you are on this bottleneck. You can see the summit of this peak, but of course there are so many people on this mountain. Uh, you were fearing for your life at that point. You said that was the first time you thought, oh my goodness, just get me to the top. And then you finally get there. Talk to us about that feeling, because of course Robbie and I will never do it, or at least I can speak for myself, I never will. Paint a vivid picture for me and our listeners. What is it like standing atop K2? Uh, I don't usually get emotional, but when I got there, I cried because I couldn't believe I did it. Um, there were many, I mean, I, I said earlier last year, I had, I, I didn't get scared or I, I wasn't even emotional when I got to the top. But this year was different because I had many moments when I thought, 
Will I be able to do it? It's really tough. I, I, and I, you know, I try to stop the negative thought that I won't be able to do it. Um, but like I said, at Bottleneck, I even thought, will I be able to get back home safe? Uh, and when I made it to the top, you know, without getting injured or hurt, uh, I just couldn't believe it. And like I said earlier, I started my mountaineering career last year. So usually people have, uh, they climb many mountains and then they pick K2. But I didn't want to limit my uh, I, uh, my thoughts or limit myself to and think, oh no, I can't do K2. I, I you know, I I had a goal, I went for it, and when I was at the top, I was like, I can't believe it. <laughs> and and it was actually even physically, I, I struggled for a few minutes because I took my mask off and I tried wanting to take pictures, and I had to put it back on for five minutes because I couldn't breathe. Uh, and I recorded a couple of videos. I couldn't talk properly, so it took me a few minutes to. How long do you spend on the top? We actually, like I said earlier, we wanted to avoid the queue. We left a bit late, uh, so we had we were nearly the last people to get to, to the top. So we spent maybe thirty to forty minutes, which is, I mean, we we waited in the queue for three hours. So we thought, why not spend a bit longer uh, at the top? Okay, well, it's getting getting down is is obviously not no small feat either. I mean, it's it's very dangerous even descending the mountain. So you must have been conscious of that as well. Uh, descending is actually uh, harder and it's more dangerous. Um, so uh, it, it took us, we wanted to come down from uh, summit same day, uh, but we got stuck uh, behind people who weren't feeling well or, or who were actually scared. They, they were fine going up, but they were scared on the technical section. So we got stuck. So it took us two days to actually come down oh my Lord. Uh, from the summit. Well, listen, Ayla, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us to, to share this story with us. I guess the obvious question would be now what's next is Everest part of your future uh, Everest is par part of my future but uh, not immediate immediately uh, I'm planning to climb Nanga Parbat and uh, Broad Peak uh, next both both of these peaks are in Pakistan uh, Pakistan has five 8,000 meter peaks and I want to complete the big them. five <laughs> wow uh, yes that's amazing and also you know it's it's very unusual what you're what you're doing and and I guess the, I, when you do something like this the records are, are almost that they don't that they're that they don't mean as much as as the actual feat itself the records are neither here nor there is is that how you view them when you when you talk about becoming the first to, to Pakistani woman to do it at the first attempt is that significant for you or is it more the personal challenge of you and the mountain uh, I think it was, it's the personal challenge if that title was actually given to me um, I do it because I enjoy doing it it's a passion and last year like I said I didn't even know I'd be able to climb it climb it or not and then uh, my next year's challenge Nanga Prabhat and Broad Peak again it's something I really want to do I want to experience and I want to say that I've done it uh, and you know if somebody climbed before me then great I'm not too bothered about being the first or second or uh, about the titles well you keep smashing it it's but if I you, get Naila. the title yes you know if, if yeah, I'm the first one then yeah <laughs> of course it will listen uh, Naila Kiani thank you so much for coming into our humble abode on off script and sharing your story with us I cannot wait to see what you do next but of course as always stay safe please yes first safety is a priority and I'll end with this my teacher told me 
uh, first mistake on the mountain is the last mistake. So I make sure that I intentionally, you know, if I, I, I make sure that I don't do any mistake Good. myself. If it happens, it happens. But thank you so much for having me here. It was such a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And no, first time on radio on. as well. Let me tell you, I think you've got a future in radio as well now. <laughs> Fantastic to have Naila Kiani in with us, the second Pakistani woman to reach the summit of K2. What a story. What an inspiration. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 